Welcome to Theology Q&A, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective, and I'm your host, Pastor Aaron. So good to be back with you for yet another episode, but before we get into the topic, I got to tell y'all something. We're just getting back, my wife and I and our youngest son, from getting our youngest daughter settled into college, and... I have just been in kind of a daze. You know, I can remember the evening that she was born like it was yesterday. And um, this has been like um, just surreal, you know, the the transition. Um, you know, we have a blended family of five children, right? And so our home has always been lively. It's always a lot of noise and activity and things of that nature. And now we're down to one child at home, our youngest son, and he's in junior high. And, you know, it's been like, honestly, I'm, we're, we're so proud of her and I'm so happy for her. But there's also this this very real feeling of sadness because that that I just really wasn't anticipating, you know, because, uh, you know, there are some ways I was like, yeah, you know, when all the children are gone, it's just going to be me and you, babe, and, you know, get the house back. But that was probably just me just trying to play tough, man. It has it, it's not been easy. Like, I'm so proud of her. And I, I only mention that to you guys. Pray for us. Pray for me, man. Just, you know, we're happy. We're proud and all of those things. Um, but it's very different. It's a very real transition. And for anybody who might be listening and your children are older and, and, and maybe out of the house or headed out of the house, like you, you, you know what I'm talking about. And so anyway, that's what we've been up to and we've got her all settled in and, and, uh, she started classes this week and I'm trying not to blow her phone up and text her all the time and, you know, let her do her thing. Like I know she will. She's, She's an amazing young woman, but yeah, so that's just kind of where we've been. So <laughs> um, anyway, coming up, we're going to get into the topic for this episode, and that is Black Theology and Public Policy. Black theology and public policy. Let's deal with public policy first. So in any society, there are government structures that enact laws and make policies and even allocate resources, you know, and this happens at all levels, local level, state level, national level, whichever way that particular society is structured. And public policy can be defined generally as a system of laws, regulatory measures, courses of action, and even funding priorities concerning a given topic by the government or its representatives. And so the way in which individuals and groups interact concerning public policy largely revolves around attempting to shape it through education, through advocacy, through uh, mobilizing different interest groups and things of that nature. 
this this process is something that is ongoing. Now, a major aspect of public policy is law. And in a general sense, the law includes specific legislation and provisions of that government's constitution or whatever whatever governing documents or system of law that, that they live by. Now, examples of public policy that we are familiar with include the criminal justice system, right? So these are things like the death penalty, drug policy, gun control. There's culture and society which deals with issues like the arts, abortion, civil rights, economic affairs that deals with budgets and taxes. There's education, whether it's elementary, secondary, or higher education, the environment, our air quality, global warming, climate change, government operations, like how our government operates. And um, we, we see that a lot with people uh, in terms of uh, like campaign finance and, and people who are, you know, who speak and advocate for, for campaign finance reform. Then there's health care, like health insurance, Medicare, social welfare uh, in terms of social security and and welfare programs and even foreign affairs and national defense um, in terms of our security. And we, we have to deal with this aspect of policy because policies and laws affect us. They, they affect us both directly and indirectly. Laws and policies can work to protect human life or put human life in danger. They can work to empower or marginalize. They can create equity and opportunity, or they can create unfairness. Laws and policies can liberate or they can enslave. They can work to welcome or they can work to exclude. And within this conversation about defining policy, we also have to talk about advocacy because advocacy includes pleading for causes and, and maintaining a cause, supporting and promoting the interests of a cause or a group. Because again, these are all things that are done to shape policy, to, to, to shape our laws. And within this context, advocacy is attempting to influence public policy. And this could be done through education, through lobbying, through political pressure. And we as believers interact with, we are affected by policy and laws all the time, all the time. And I believe that we've also been called to be active, to actually participate in the process, to actually engage in, in, in the process in terms of policy development or reform where it's needed. So as believers, here we are, a people born again, called by God to live in submission to the Lordship of Christ as his covenant people, right? To obey the commands of God, which can be summed up and, and, and was summed up by Jesus as loving God and loving our neighbor. And within that framework, I believe that advocacy and activism 
are essential elements to the Christian life. Genuine faith is always accompanied by corresponding action. And this is something that we see in the scripture. So as God rescues his people, as he is establishing them as a nation, as he's establishing them as a people, giving them their identity as a covenant people, how they were to live and how they were to represent him in the world. We have passages, for instance, like Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18, and also within that chapter, verses 32 to 37. And starting at verse 9 in Leviticus 19, the Lord says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so we see here that even the Lord is telling them as 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 landowners, as stewards, that when they were to reap their harvest, they weren't just to just they, they weren't just to just strip everything bare, that they were to leave the corners, to leave the edges. Why? Because this provided care for those who were in poverty, for those who were strangers in their land. He goes on to say, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you, you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in verse 32, it says, you shall rise before the gray headed and honor the aged and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. The reason that I am taking the time to read this text is because we see the Lord giving his people the law, the Lord establishing the ethics of his kingdom. And it is important to note that these are not simply private issues. He's teaching his people, commanding his people as to how they are to live 
and engage and interact with the people and the world around them. And it's very important that we see that, that these are the types of principles and ethics that should influence the types of policies and things that we support, the kind of things that we either support or the kind of things that we oppose. You know, what, we, what we're what we for and, and what we're against, it shouldn't be rooted in some arbitrary system. It should be rooted in the truth of God's word, the ethics of his kingdom, and how God has commanded us as his people to live. And this is something that the Lord takes very, very seriously. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about his second coming, and he's talking about you know, the, the, the judgment. And he said that all the nations would be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And Matthew 25, 34, he, he said, then the king will say to them on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did nothing to invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Surely I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is a very serious passage of scripture. And it's not a passage where Jesus is saying that if you do these things, you earn salvation. He's saying, no, as my people, as a people of faith, as those who have been rescued by the grace of God, this is the life. This is the lifestyle, the ethics, the the, the manner of living that we have been called to. James put it like this in James chapter 1 verse 27. He said, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the word of God is very clear as to the manner in which the Lord has called us to live. And it's not 
that we have been called to live simply like, like private lives of holiness. No, the Lord has called us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And as such, that should also flesh itself out in the policies that we support, the policies and the people that we advocate for, and the things that we are also against. And so our faith as disciples of Christ should greatly influence and come to bear on the types of policies that we either get behind or, again, we oppose. It's very important before we get into the nuts and bolts and some specific examples of black theology and public policy that we see these two things. What public policy is and how our faith should come to bear on it. What God expects of us as his people. Now, after the break, we're going to deal with some aspects of American public policy and black theology in particular. I had a mentor that used to say that things don't go wrong. They start wrong. And I can't help but think of that statement when I look at American history. Our nation was built on laws and on a system that was inherently racist. Now, I know that that may be extremely offensive to some, and it may seem even to some inflammatory, but actual historic record and facts show that to be the case. For instance, the preamble of the United States Constitution says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And so we see these phrases within the preamble, right? Form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty. But we have to ask our, ourselves, for whom? Because black people were not included. Indigenous people were not included within the framework and the intent of this preamble. I'm reminded of an old case, right? Brought by a man named Dred Scott. For those of you who don't know who Dred Scott was, Dred Scott was a slave who had accompanied his owner, who was an army physician, to different postings, different bases in Illinois, which was a free state, and also to Wisconsin, which at the time was a free territory. It wasn't a state yet. It was a territory. And they eventually returned to the state of Missouri, which 
was a slave state. And in 1846, Scott and his wife, aided by anti-slavery lawyers, they actually sued for their freedom in a St. Louis court on the grounds that their residence in a free territory had freed them from the bonds of slavery, that because they had moved from a slave state to live at one point in a free state and then in another point in a free territory, that this was grounds for them to be freed from slavery. Well, Scott's case eventually reached the Supreme Court, right? The highest court in the land. And the highest court in the land ruled that Dred Scott was not entitled to his freedom. And more broadly, that African-Americans were not U.S. citizens. That's, that's something that's very major. And we are still, again, dealing with the repercussions and the consequences of such laws and policies. Now, the Dred Scott decision was the Supreme Court's ruling, again, and one of the things that is important to see here is that they decided that Congress had no power to exclude slavery from the territories and also that African-Americans could never become U.S. citizens. Now, this is just one historical example of many, but American policy and American laws were shaped by things such as this. And so I bring this up because we have to ask ourselves a question. How are we, as the people of God, to conduct ourselves living within a context such as this? How were people of God, how did people of God conduct, conduct themselves then? And how are we as the people of God to conduct ourselves now? And the only way that unjust policies are overturned and just policies implemented in their place is through advocacy, through activism, through protest. We must say something. We must do something. And this is a fundamental part of the legacy of the black church. Time after time, voice after voice, movement after movement, whether it's dealing with abolition, civil rights, women's rights, education, poverty, economic empowerment, the environment, health care, mass incarceration, or pro police brutality. Y'all, we need the likes of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Ella Baker, Daisy Bates, Claudette Colvin, Shirley Sherrod, Thelma Glass, Ruby Bridges, and Fannie Lou Hamer in every generation. You see, throughout the history of this nation, black sisters and brothers of the Christian faith have stood boldly. They resisted and even laid down their lives working to bring about much needed change in laws and public policy. Wherever there have been, wherever there are, and wherever there will be policies that are unjust and out of step with biblical principles of righteousness, human flourishing, and God's created order, they must be opposed. And this isn't about seeking to dominate society. It's about seeking to live faithfully as the children of God. See, black theology 
is as it's rooted in the truth of God's word is what fueled black advocacy. Because it's rooted in our identity as the covenant people of God. Jesus taught us to pray for the kingdom of God to come and for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And along with our praying, we need to speak and write and act and all of those things in line with that. It's it's us being honest about what's going on within our own hearts and minds, about what's going on in our homes, what's going on in our churches, what's going on in our communities, what's going on in this nation. Where are we silent when we should be speaking? Where are we complicit when we should be resisting? What are we holding on to in terms of advantage and privilege that the Holy Spirit is calling us to let go? See, this is one of the beautiful things about the legacy of black theology as it has come to bear on American public policy. We, we, we see it when Dr. King was at the Lincoln Memorial giving his famous speech, right? And he, and he talked about there being a check that was written that they had come to cash. And, and him standing there along with the rest of those leaders calling the nation to live in line with its ideals and pointing out very clearly and prophetically that up until that point, the nation had failed to do so. That's the legacy of black theology as it has come to bear on public policy. It was necessary then. It is definitely necessary now. And it will be necessary in the days to come. And so may the Lord open our eyes soften our hearts, and strengthen our resolve. May we not grow weary in our well-doing. Saints, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is just. And in Jesus, who is our resurrected Savior and King, we have victory. And so in the words of the Apostle Paul, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so until next time, may we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Theology Q&A with Aaron James is powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. Special thanks to executive producers Tyler Burns and Bo York. Send in your thoughts and questions for future episodes by emailing Aaron at thewitnessbcc.com and learn more about this and other shows at thewitnessbcc.com.
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.